the armor that he would wear into battle probably weighed more than most of the soldiers of Israel's did in their whole body. He stood toe-to-toe and he said, come and fight me. Send me a man. And whoever wins the fight between the two of us will decide the fate of both armies. The victor will become the owner, the master of the loser. If it's us, we take you. And if it's you, you take us. And how did God's armies, the, the, God's chosen people, how did they respond? They ran away. They were confused. They were dismayed. They were terrified for their lives. But the hero was about to appear on the scene. David, the shepherd boy. And before we meet our familiar champion, I want to ask you two questions to keep in mind from now to the very end. Joe Hodges and I were talking about this just a few weeks ago. When I, when I study scripture, the familiar stories like David and Goliath or the, the more confusing passages, I try to keep two questions in mind because it helps me keep pushing forward. Question number one, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Every page, every word of scripture is about and points to Jesus. Every story, every psalm, every proverb, every prophetic utterance is about Jesus. He is the focus. So we must seek him out in every passage of scripture. And question number two, where am I? Now, I'm not the focus of the story. We are not the focus of the stories of scripture. Jesus is, but we are there. It may be thousands of years later, but, but the story applies to us. The story is about us too, because Jesus is all about us. So the two questions we have to ask this morning about David and Goliath is where is Jesus and where am I? And where is David? Verse 20, jump there with me if you would. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. And jumped to verse 26. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? If you're taking notes today, you're my favorite people. Point number one, we are in a battle. We are in a battle. By the time David showed up, Goliath had been shouting his usual defiance for 40 days. For 40 days, they would draw up the lines for battle. They would shout the war cry. They would blow the trumpets. They would wave the flags as if they were going to fight, and then they would run away. It's as if God's armies, God's people had decided they were going to hide from the battle until it just went away. If we ignore it, if we just don't acknowledge it, maybe he'll get bored and just decide we're not worth it. And yet every day the battle was right in front of them. So David shows up as his father had directed him to go and check on his brothers. And he shows up and the very first day he just so happens to hear Goliath shouting his usual defiance. He sees the battle right in front of him. And instead of running away, he starts to ask questions, saying, what, what's going on here? Why are we allowing this to continue? 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who's going to do something about this and what's going to be done for them that do? David realized from the moment he stepped off the cart and he began to greet his brothers, he heard Goliath shouting. He understood very clearly he was in a battle. He had no other course of action than to engage. And friends, we have to understand that just like David and the Israelite army thousands of years ago, we, we are in a battle today. We don't line up in the Valley of Elah and we don't draw our swords and we don't blare the trumpets, but we're fighting every single day of our lives. Are we fighting against the coronavirus? No. Are we fighting against a certain political party? No. Are we fighting against those who would oppose our views on biblical marriage, on abortion, on religious freedoms and liberties? No. They are symptoms of a larger problem. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, again, another very familiar passage, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The armies of, is of evil, excuse me, are led by Satan himself. Our enemy is invisible, and yet there is evidence of him everywhere that we turn. He trots out his champion every single day to taunt us, to torment us, to remind us of our past failures and mistakes. His champion's name is not Goliath. His champion's name is sin. And our enemy knows he's lost the war, but he battles every day. And he trots out our failures, our mistakes, our shortcomings, our addictions, our insecurities, our doubts, our worries, our fears, everything that keeps you up at night. And that is his champion shouting his usual defiance, sin. And friends, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we are in a battle every single day. You can choose to ignore it. You can deny that it is even going on. But wishing it away does not make it so. We are in a battle every single day of our lives. And secondly, we cannot defeat the giant. This is really encouraging stuff, I know. I've been thinking about it for three months. Point number one, we're in a battle. Point number two, we cannot defeat the giant, means we cannot win the battle. Look with me back at 1 Samuel 17, verses 31 through 33. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You were only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. After 40 days of hiding and running in fear from Goliath, I would imagine word traveled fast through the camp that someone else had shown up and was asking questions about what to do about Goliath. It's possible King Saul began to think to himself, is there yet a man in Israel that God could send to us to defeat this threat? And can you imagine his surprise when in strolls the shepherd boy from Bethlehem? You need to know something about Saul in case you didn't or had forgotten. One of the distinguishing physical features of King Saul, one of the things that, that turned the eyes of Israel to him when they were looking for a king was the fact, as Samuel described him, that he stood head and shoulders above every other man in Israel. Saul was massive. 
If the average man in Israel was six foot tall, Saul was six foot seven. He towered above every man in Israel. He commanded their respect just by his physical prowess. And even if he were advanced in age at this point, he still would have towered over David, the youngest son of Jesse, a shepherd from nowhere. The runt of the litter, the last one dad sent out to the battle, and he wasn't even allowed to be in the army. He was sent to check on the real soldiers. He was bringing food because his brothers might get hungry from battling so hard in a fight he wasn't supposed to be in. And yet here he strolls into the king's tent and says, don't sweat it, king. I'll take care of this guy. I fought the lion and the bear. This guy's small potatoes compared to them. And King Saul looked this, this, this brave young man in the face and probably respected his desire, probably respected his charisma. But he spoke truth to David when he said, Goliath will chew you up and spit you out. He's been fighting longer than you've been alive, David. You don't have the experience. You don't have the training. You don't even have weapons to protect yourself, much less to take him on and take him down. What Saul said was true. When he added up all the facts and laid it out on the table, he was not lying to David. And friends, we are in a battle against sin. And the truth is we cannot defeat it. Because if we could, we would have a long time ago. We would have picked ourselves up by our bootstraps and by sheer will for, willpower alone, we would have forced back this enemy that stands over us every day like a nine and a half foot tall giant. But we don't have it within us. We don't have the necessary skills. We don't have the necessary strength and experience. And one of the things that, that breaks my heart, and I believe even more so breaks the heart of God, is, is men and women of God walking around defeated and enslaved to the same old sin that they say they left behind at the cross of Calvary. I don't know why, and I'm speaking from my own experience here in my own life. We have no problem. We have zero problem singing the songs like we sang last week. The enemy has been defeated. Death couldn't hold you down. All these things we sing about victory. We sing about Satan being under our feet. You may not remember that, but that was an old one from the 90s. We jump up and down. I don't do that anymore. But we don't sing a lot about the struggle that we have with sin because it's not something we want to sing about. Friends, I haven't, I haven't been a lot of places and I haven't done a lot of things, but in my limited experience, if I could share with you half of the things that people confessed to me when I was their pastor, good people, God-fearing, God-loving people, the burdens they carried, the struggles that they faced, they were in a battle every single day. And there were some times when they felt like they couldn't win it. The champion is strong. And friends, we cannot defeat the giant. But remember, I told you to keep two questions in mind. Number one, where is Jesus? He's the focus of every story, especially this one. And where are we? Where am I and where are you? I think it should be obvious by now that we are not David. That's my frustration with this story. 
So many times I've heard it preached that we are like King David and we can go and we can take on this giant with nothing but a sword or a sling or, or some puny little instrument and because God is great through us, we can do something. If that were true, how different would the world look? You know where I am in this story? I won't speak for you, but I'm in the tents hiding with the rest of my brothers and sisters. I don't know what to do. I'm confused, I'm overwhelmed, I am hopelessly and desperately overmatched. That's where I am. But friends, where is Jesus? He is the son of David. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he, in this story, is the giant slayer. Because friends, point number three is this. The giant is dead. It's time to take the land. The giant is dead. And it's time to take the land. We're going to read this last little exchange. We're going to get to the climax of our story. But keep those questions in your mind. Who is Jesus? Where is Jesus? And where am I? Jesus is David, and he is the giant slayer, taking on the giant of sin in our lives. Jump to verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog? You come at me with sticks. The Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know there is yet a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shaarim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. The giant is dead, and it's time to take the land. Jesus slayed the giant. And so the soldiers who previously had been afraid of Goliath after David struck him down, where, where were they? They surged out of their tents and they pushed back the enemy all the way home. If you read Hebrew history after this, the Philistines were never the same threat to God's people. Were they there? Yes. But their champion was dead. They could no longer subdue God's people they could no longer keep them under their thumb because they had been defeated. The Philistines had five capital cities, 
two of them were Gath and Ekron. God's armies in one day pushed back against 40% of their enemy. That may not sound overwhelming to you, but those are life-changing numbers. 40% could change the tide in America. 40% could change the tide in this community. But it starts with getting out of the tents and taking the land because the giant is dead. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. You've been saved from sin, friends. And I'm not talking to all of you, but I'm talking to some of you. For whatever reason, you keep pumping life into the dead champion of sin in your life. And I believe God sent me here today to tell you to let him lay and walk away. Because God didn't create you to battle against the same sin every day. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light and appointed you to be a chosen priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you would show forth the praises of him. It is not up to us to keep fighting a battle that's already been won. And for whatever reason, we keep picking up the same old chains and we keep reviving the same dead enemy. And God sent me here today to tell you to let him lay. He's already dead. I don't know what the champion of sin looks like in your life. I know what it's looked like in mine over the years. I remember how frustrating it gets. I remember how difficult, how embarrassing and shameful it is. But the giant is dead. And you don't have to fight him anymore. Because Jesus, the giant slayer, is here today. I don't really, I guess I didn't really understand how that all tied in with what I'm about to say. But I was driving down the road several weeks ago now between Dexter and Bernie. I can tell you we had just crossed past Highway H. And my wife had no idea. The kids were in the back. You can't hardly have a conversation with God in my car because it's so loud. But in, in that moment, this message was on my heart. And I began to just ask God, God, what? What is it that we need? What do we do with this? And that word that we've sang about even today and the word that we toss around quite often, and I mean that in a good way, is the word revival. I believe that God wants us to be a people in revival. But, but who is it that needs reviving? Sick people? Comatose people? Dead people? need revival. Charles, what are you saying about us? Nothing I'm not saying about myself. If we want to be a people of revival, we first have to admit where we are. And some of us 
are struggling against a dead giant. On that little drive home one night, God gave me a paragraph in my mind. It's never happened before, never. And I knew I needed to remember it, but I'm driving the car slightly above the speed limit and my children are in the back seat. My wife is in the passenger seat. I can't just whip out my phone as some of you might do and just put in my phone as a note. So the whole time I'm, I'm having this conversation with God, God, this is really bad timing to, to put this on me. I know I need to get it down. And somehow my brain does not work this way. I got home and I pulled out my phone and I wrote down exactly what God said. This is what God spoke to me. Do you want to know what revival is? It's when the army of God awakens to the reality that their enemy has been vanquished, their great foe has been defeated, and they are now free to charge forward into what they have been called, created, and commissioned to do, and that is to take the land. The story does not end when the giant hits the ground. The story ends when the mission is over and the king sits on the throne, unchallenged and unhindered to reign supreme. Our king is Jesus. He is the giant slayer, and we are soldiers in his army. I told pastor before the service started that I was going to hand this off to him, and I'm going to do that. But I have a responsibility because we are all soldiers in a battle and some of us are on the wrong side. You, you may think you haven't chosen a side. You're not in God's army, so this doesn't apply to you. Friends, you are only in one of two armies. If you're not in God's army, you're in the other one. And you don't wanna be there, but you don't have to be. You feel as if you cannot leave the camp you're in because the giant is too big. But I've told you this morning and all of scripture tells you the giant is dead. And what is holding you down is no more because King Jesus sits on the throne and he reigns supreme. So I want to tell you, today is the day. You're going to have to decide, are you on King Jesus' side or are you on the side of the armies of evil and darkness and sin? If every single one of us, God forbid, were to die today, how you answer this question determines where you spend eternity. And there are only two options. The ones in the army of the Lord go to heaven. The ones who are not, don't. They go to hell. That's not something we, we want to talk about today, but it's just the truth. And I came here to tell you the truth. You don't have to go to hell, friend. But you will if you choose to. I'm not, uh, I'm not... I'm not into the business of embarrassing people. I don't try to do that. But I believe that the moment of salvation is a conscious choice, something that you have to do. You have to say, that's me, I make that choice. I'm not gonna ask anybody to come forward, but I am gonna ask you to take a stand because that's what soldiers do. You stand up and you choose to fight. I'm not talking to the people that have, have already been saved, although I believe many of you would stand and choose to fight. I'm talking to the ones that are on the wrong side. It's time to cross to the, to the right side of the fence, to the right side of the battle. If you would choose Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, and you've never done that, this is your moment. I'm gonna ask you to stand up right where you are. 
Don't hesitate. It's a choice. All you have to do is make your choice. If you would choose to accept Jesus. Well, Charles, I don't have the words to say. I'll give you the words. You just have to make the choice. We've got some already standing. Would you stand with, with them if that's you? Anybody else? Here's what I'm going to do. I want to ask everybody in here, whether you're standing or sitting, I'm going to pray a prayer. Now I'm going to ask every single person in here out loud with your voice to repeat it after me in support of those who are standing. Would you bow your heads with me and repeat this prayer after me? Dear Jesus, I've been on the wrong side. I've lived defeated by the champion of sin. I need a Savior, and Jesus, you are that Savior. Jesus, would you forgive me of my sins, what I know I've done wrong. Jesus, I give myself to you. I'm on your side. And right now, I choose to commit the rest of my life to knowing you and to serving you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Those of you that responded to the message, whether you stood up or not, before you leave today, would you come and find Pastor Dwight or his wife or any of those that you know are in leadership in this church? They're up here. Some of these people I know they'd love to talk to you are out at the Connect desk. And just tell them, hey, that was me. And again, not to embarrass you, but just to let you know that we celebrate with you and, and maybe answer questions that you might have to point you in the right direction for what's next in your walk with the Lord. And for the rest of you, before I hand this off to Pastor, I want to ask you a few questions just to keep in mind. Number one, what changes are you going to make to keep the giant of sin dead and buried? What has to change? What has to go away? What has to be brought into your life? so that you begin to realize and live as if sin is dead and buried. Number two, who needs to walk with you as you work to walk away from the struggles you've been going through? The only one who fights alone is Jesus. The rest of us need help. And that is where our church family comes in. And finally, how are you going to go out and take the land starting today? Who are you going to tell about Jesus? How are you going to grow in your walk with him so others can see him through your life? 